I'm Bill Crossman with Knox County Friends of the Library. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In on this rainy day outside where you're going to get a wonderful talk in here. And today we're honored to welcome Wanda Sobieski. She joined Baker, Worthington, Crossley, Stansbury, and Wolf Law Firm in 1982 and was the first woman partner in the 100-year history of the firm. Uh, Eleven years later, she established her own law firm, and she's a coordinator of the Knoxville Women's Suffrage Coalition and commissioner of the Tennessee Commemorative Women's Suffrage Commission. She led the effort to raise funding for the Tennessee Suffrage Memorial here in Knoxville and saw it through until the unveiling in August of 2006 down here in Market Square Mall. So um, she's been very active in social issues, political campaigns on behalf of candidates that she feels would improve the administration of justice. She also has lobbied for social change legislation and has appeared before the state legislation committees and judicial committees um, in Nashville. Um, Jimmy Carter's book, A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. And we're looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, Jimmy Carter was our 39th president, as you all know, but he has a number of other qualifications that I just want to mention. He was also, of course, governor of Arkansas. Georgia, sorry. (laughs) United States Navy submarine officer during World War II, a lifetime farmer, grew up on a farm just outside of Plains, Georgia. He was a deacon most of his adult life. He was a member of the Southern Baptist Convention until he was over 70 years old. And at 70, he resigned from the convention because they decided that year that they would reduce the position of women in the within the Baptist Convention churches and would not allow them to take on leadership roles. So in protest, he resigned from the Southern Baptist Convention. He's still a Baptist. He still teaches Sunday school down in Plains, Georgia. I understand you have to call ahead to get in his class because <laughs> there are so many people. Uh, and he's taught the Bible for over 70 years. And he's a very devout man of faith. He is a student of people and of customs worldwide. He has personally visited and studied in 145 countries. That's a lot. He has the Carter Center has active projects in over half of those countries. And the Carter Center is a philanthropy-based organization that focuses on peace and human rights. And he's done projects that include everything from water supply and disease control projects to much uh, more serious projects about trying to get religious leaders to change the way they talk about women. He looks for global solutions, and that's, that's his general perspective. This is his summary. The most serious and unaddressed worldwide challenge is the deprivation and abuse of women and girls, largely caused by false interpretations of carefully selected religious texts across all religions, I might add, and a growing tolerance of violence and warfare. This is not just a woman's issue. It's not confined to the poorest countries, and it affects us all. And that is the summary of what his book is about. And then he goes from that point back to to very large 
large concepts using, for example, Census Bureau studies and United Nations studies and all kinds of academic and social studies, and then comes back to the individual as well in, in very small vignettes explaining this thesis. But the bottom line is, the number one, if we want to do something to improve the condition of the world, we can affect the most change by changing the way women are treated. And with that is his underlying thesis. And a lot of the mistreatment of women comes from the misapplication of religious texts. For example, he likes to quote some counter-texts. We all hear St. Paul and his women have to be silent and submit to your husbands and so forth and so on. Well, this is one of his favorite ones because this is St. Paul on women's rights, which is interesting. You need to learn, however, that a woman is not different from man and man is not different from woman. Woman may come from man, but man is born of woman and both come from God. And so he uses that to illustrate the fact that those texts that we often hear quoted that justify the degradation of women are simply out of context and misinterpreted. And unless you think that maybe we've gotten past that here in the United States, that we've gotten past it in our religious faiths, let me show you something. I was actually looking on the internet for a movie clip to show how preachers used to preach against women's rights, and I found this. Oh, no, no sound. Well, okay. Let me tell you what he's saying. (laughs) He is saying, what's all this about women's rights, women's rights? We hear about it all the time. What do they want? Women's rights means the right to divorce your husband. (laughs) Women's rights means the right to vote. Whoever thought they should vote? We should change that. We should take it back. That's what he says in this movie clip. It's not fiction. It's real, and it's from 2014. (laughs) If you Google CDD, Christian Domestic Discipline, you'll get a very good example of what Jimmy Carter was talking about because that's a group, an organized group, who claims to have over 40,000 members that use the Bible and biblical text to justify husbands restraining their wives, punishing their wives, and using physical force against them as they feel appropriate and uh, tries to brainwash basically the women into accepting that kind of discipline and that kind of relationship with their husband as a tenant of the faith. So look up Christian domestic discipline. I expect any day in Fourth Circuit or in the Order of Protection Court to run into somebody who wants to defend on that theory. So obviously that's been a problem. Jimmy Carter's thesis, or one of his theses, is that as long as we accept bias and we accept discrimination and injustice, then we're creating the foundation for more violence, for war and for domestic violence on every level. And he says, unfortunately, the United States is a leader in creating an atmosphere of violence. Our prison systems, for example, we have shifted from rehabilitation of prisoners to punishment of prisoners. And in so doing, we basically need to write off the people we send there because the punishment combined with the atmosphere there usually leaves people more inclined to re reoffend than if they're treated with a better approach. 
He says we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. We incarcerate more of our own citizens, our own people, than any other country on earth. 22% of the world's prisoners are imprisoned in the United States. But we have only 4.5% of the world's population. Think about that. I really don't think that our people are that much worse than people in other countries. Um, He says that we now have 3,278 people serving life sentences for nonviolent crimes. Not for violence. For nonviolent crimes, we have that many lifers. And 65.4% of those lifers are people of color. In California, he used California as an example, since 1973, California spent $4 billion to convict 13 cases, death cases. About $307 million a conviction just to kill someone. And it's incidentally much cheaper to keep them in prison for life than it is to kill them. He says the U.S. is the only country in NATO that executes its citizens. And we often hear that we should continue with capital punishment because it will deter crime. Well, we have the homicide rate that's three times higher than Western Europe. So it's not doing a very good job of deterring homicides, which is what we usually associate the death penalty with. And this makes me sad, but the southern states do 80% of the executions in the United States and still have the highest murder rates here in the south. That's, that was shocking to me. Another thing he pointed out is a phenomenon they've noticed all around the world, and that is that whenever there's a state execution of someone, the homicide rates increase around the time of that execution. And, you know, there's some people that say that's because we're publicly accepting violence and murder, and that somehow works on people's psyches to make it more acceptable in their circumstance to commit a murder. So that kind of record of violence against our own citizens creates an atmosphere where we're much more tolerant of bias and prejudice and discrimination. Worldwide, there's been a significant increase in the proportion of women incarcerated as as compared to men. And they're generally held in worse conditions than men are. The prisons are created primarily with men in mind. And women are often held not for crimes of violence, but often for moral crimes, which may be sexual crimes, prostitution, and so forth, or maybe stealing which may have something to do with their economic condition, you would think. Race and violence, of course, has been an issue in the United States for quite some time. There's been an increase in black women being incarcerated in the last decade by 800%. 800%. And that... Largely those are drug-related. Most of them are prescription pill-related, not uh, you know, typical street drug kinds of arrests. The victims of homicide are six times more likely to be black than they are to be of any other color. And 77% of the death penalties are issued for white victims. So most of the victims are black, but most of the death penalties come 
because of white victims. So is there racism in the system for physical or capital punishment? Of course there is. And there are a lot of explanations for that. Sexual assault and rape. He says that one in five female students is sexually assaulted or raped each year. One in five. Those are huge numbers. And we're seeing a little bit more in the news about this. 95% of students who are raped on college campuses remain silent. Most of them believe that it won't do any good to report it, that it creates more problems for them than it does for the perpetrator. The cases against white male perpetrators are almost never uh, succeed in the court system on a college campus rape in particular. And then he points to a New England study where there were 1,700 victims and six of those, only six, reported for prosecution. Three out of the 1,700 victims went to hearing and the result of all that 1,700 rapes was one male got expelled. That's all. So we're not dealing with sexual violence like it's a real crime. Gender inequity, he points out to us, is worldwide. Of course, we know in Saudi Arabia women can't vote. They still can't drive legally. Sometimes they get acid thrown in their face if they try to. Although a majority of women are college educated in, this is in Saudi Arabia, versus only 16% of the men with college education, 78% of the women are unemployed because of religious or cultural opposition to them being out in the workforce. So there's a lot of suppression there. China's People Congress, this is interesting, is 23% female. That's better than we have. And half of the senior management positions in China are held by women. That's a lot better than we have here. Only 20% in the U.S. and 24% worldwide. So um, we're not exactly leading the pack in correcting any of these problems. Spouse abuse is another issue he deals with under the rubric of violence. The World Health Organization estimates that a third of women are physically abused during their lifetimes. Ninety percent of the wives in Afghanistan say that physically abusing women could be appropriate. Now that's a cultural problem, a cultural point of view learned. GPS monitors have been used, he pointed out, in some areas now where they put the GPS monitor after either a sexual assault or a spousal abuse on the perpetrator. So instead of having the woman having to hide all the time, he's tracked. And now they can track them with a cell phone. It's amazing. And where they have used the GPS monitors, they've been very successful, and only 5% of the women have had to go to shelters. Whereas not without the GPS monitor programs in place, 90% of the women go to the shelters. And that's something that could be done here. And incidentally, they usually make the perpetrator pay for the monitor and the monitoring. The next one is really hard for me to talk about because it's, it's the issue of honor killings. And I was astounded to learn that in 2010, there were 2,823 honor killings in the United Kingdom. Now, honor killings are killing women because they've been either spoken up and therefore embarrassed the family, or they've been raped and that's embarrassing to the family, or they've committed some sexual crime. Well, it's not really sexual crime, but it's treated as a sexual crime. 
Uh, there are 20,000 honor killings per year. Many of them are because they broke with customs. 20% of the killings in Egypt are honor killings. One out of five. One out of five, an honor killing. And that's, that's a sentence not carried out by a justice system. That is a, a publicly or governmentally approved killing of a woman by her family. It could be a spouse, a son, an uncle, a dad. And the Muslim countries require now, if there's a, a rape victim in a Muslim country, the woman has to have four men attest to it to be able to prove rape. And, of course, we know they always wait for a gang to be around. You know? <laughs> but, uh, so, so those are barriers to reducing the violence against women. And this is the most difficult for me to talk about, genital cutting, literally cutting the genitalia from the external parts of the woman's body and sewing it up and sometimes barely leaving enough room for the woman to even urinate. This happens all over the world. There are 125 million women and girls estimated now have been victims of that. The UNICEF report, that's the United Nations uh, report, in 2013 said that 91% of the women in Egypt had undergone the procedure. It's usually done without anesthesia. It's done by the family, and it's done in the home. 89% of the women in Somalia have had the procedure, 96% in Guinea, and 50% in Ethiopia and in Kenya. It's considered a rite of purification, and that's, of course, another form of violence. It's widely tolerated, is the point. Genocide and slavery of girls is... It's getting a little bit more press now. We know the girls that were kidnapped in, in Africa. There is selective infanticide, the killing of girl children in China, because they'd rather have boy children. And then there is the taking of girls into sexual slavery. There are 105 million girls missing right now worldwide. The shortage of brides, because they have killed off the, the little girls as infants, has led to a market in girls and women, and sometimes girls and women are sold for between 88 to $660. 30 million slaves now um, average about $1,900 apiece. They're sexual slaves. They may be, may be also household slaves, take care of the homes. This is amazing. Two to three hundred a month are sold in Atlanta, and 42% of them are sold to the wealthiest portions of Atlanta, Georgia. Unbelievable. The U.S. Department of State says that we have 60,000 slaves here now, and in 2012, there were only 138 convictions of people who were associated with that slave trade. So the question is, what's the road to progress? President Carter notes that religious leaders often obstruct the road to progress in part because they misuse the, the terms and the texts of the church. So he met with religious leaders from all over the world and called upon that group and on all religious leaders with influence to challenge and change the harmful teachings and practices in religions and in secular life that justify discrimination against women and to acknowledge and emphasize the positive messages of equality 
and human dignity. And this included people from the Jewish faith, Islamic faith, representing virtually every known religion in the world at the conference. And he had several religious leaders sign off on that. But we still don't have. I mean, the Catholic Church won't let women be priests. The uh, Most Baptist churches that I know of, at least from my home, won't let women be preachers. Um, there are still enormous restrictions tolerated within the church that are not even tolerated in our secular society. And that's that's backwards to me. He quotes from the Global Gender Gap Report from the World Economic Forum and calls for economic, educational, political, and health empowerment of women. They studied all of the countries, and they ranked them by how good they were in addressing those issues. And the United States ranked 23rd among 136 countries on those for economics, educational, political, and health empowerment of women, those four areas. We are 67th on wage equality. Yesterday, women, you just finally caught up and earned as much as of yesterday as your counterpart male in the same position with the same opportunities earned as of December 31st last year. So the gender gap is still very much alive, and it makes a huge difference long term in your retirement and benefits and other opportunities. The United States is 16th for women in political office. In other words, 15 other countries do better percentage-wise than representation in political office. And CEDAW. Does anyone know what CEDAW is? It's a conference to end all discrimination against women. It's actually a treaty. It's a United Nations treaty that was introduced in 1983. It requires the countries that sign on to it to report every four years on what progress they have made on improving the condition of women in certain areas. Their goals are to end sexual slavery, provide access to education, give women the right to own property, have them protected from domestic violence, provide health care services, and access to loans and financial opportunities. Those are, the, those are the sort of tenets that you have to promise that you'll improve. The progress toward acceptance has been really disgusting. 188 countries in the United Nations have ratified it. All of Europe, all of Latin America, only six countries in the United Nations have not ratified it. Who are the holdouts? The United States, Iran, Palau, Somalia, Sudan, and Tonga. That's the company we keep with CEDAW. So we haven't even signed on to try. That's the message I get from it. It has never come. You know, a treaty only takes 67 votes. It's, it passes in the Senate by two-thirds vote, two-thirds majority. So you need 67 votes in the Senate. It has never come to the floor of the Senate for a vote ever. We can't get decent hearings on it. I mean, if we, don't, if we don't at least say we aspire to a goal, then we're never going to get there. In the countries, I visited several in Latin America with a, a group of friends a few years back, 
and we were meeting with groups trying to find out how CEDAW had affected the lives of women in South America in particular. And it was enormous. Having to keep statistics, having to think about it, and having to write a report, that's all it requires, has done wonderful things both to raise people's consciousness and to move toward better treatment of women. So Jimmy Carter, looking at all of these things from his perspective, both a deeply, devoutly religious man, but a president, a global leader, a human rights activist in his own right, has issued a call to action. The call to action is a number of things that he thinks that we need to be doing individually and collectively, nationally and internationally, to try to reverse this trend. I mean, the bottom line is, he believes, that if you take half of the people in the world and you make violence against them acceptable and make violence against them not only acceptable but serving some religious purpose, then you've condoned violence in such a way that we're going to have degradation everywhere. And I think he probably is correct about that personally. So one of the things he asked for in this list, and I don't want to, didn't want to bore you by reading all 28 things, is that we work on CEDAW. I mean, that's only 67 votes we have to get to pass CEDAW. And that would start raising consciousness about what our standards and our statistics are. You know, I'm fairly well read, and I was shocked by some of the reports and statistics that he cites in the book about the United States and about what we do in our acceptance of violence and in our use and abuse of our own power, and especially against our own citizens. I mean, I have trouble enough with us having several wars going at once and in a very complex world. I understand a lot of people have different feelings about it. Um, I think he makes a very good case for the fact that we need to look carefully at what we are as a society and start modeling what we say we believe in hopes that we can help other people find the model to improve human rights worldwide. Any questions or comments? I mean, I know this has been kind of heavy, but... It's real, unfortunately. Yes. As far as like CEDAW, did Jimmy Carter get like give any reason as to why like we haven't joined? Because I feel like it would be a no-brainer since all these other countries have. I don't know. Maybe. Well, yeah. It's it's kind of like letting women vote would be a no-brainer, but it took yeah. seventy-two years. <laughs> um, People come up with excuses. I don't think they're real reasons, but people start buying into it. One of the things is the same woman that headed up the battle against the Equal Rights Amendment, by the way, those young women here, you do not have equal constitutional rights. You do not. And so I know we worry about the glass ceiling and we're starting to get some cracks in it and women are filtering into the higher levels. I'm much more worried about the glass floor because most of the laws that we have are bottomed not on the Constitution that protect women. And those can go away at the whim of a legislature. And boy, we've seen them be whimmy now and then. So anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that subject. But but they come up with with excuses, and one of them is a woman who led the opposition against the Equal Rights Amendment is also leading opposition, one of the leaders in the opposition against CEDAW, claiming states' rights, and we're the United States, and we shouldn't have to report to anybody. Okay. <laughs> Pardon? That's it? Phyllis Schlafly. That's right. Yeah, if you Google her now, you'll find her working against CEDAW. 
Yes. So you're saying it has not been introduced in the Senate? I said it has never been to a vote in the Senate. It has been introduced by friends who constantly file the bill, but no, it has not been to a vote vote. in the Senate for. It's been... It's never been out of committee. Out of committee. Okay. I just wanted to report that back to my daughter who works for a senator. Okay. (laughs) We have a question up here. Uh, on the uh, subject of uh, the slaves in Atlanta, the women slaves in Atlanta, yes. do you have any more information on that? And why was Atlanta singled out? Atlanta is an international airport, so lots of times they come in by plane if we're dealing with slaves from other countries. And it's just a really big city, and they had the statistics. See, one of the things, if we had to make reports on a report card for how we're doing on these things, we'd keep statistics and then we'd know better. But most cities don't really have statistics on human trafficking is what they typically call it now, but on these kinds of sexual slavery issues. And that's just one Mr. Carter used. There's a little bit of more detail in the book. I didn't put on the slide what study that came from, and I've frankly forgotten the source now. Uh, I see Commissioner Brolls in the back. I just wanted to say, especially since we have so many young women here, that we can't sit and wait for men who are elected to office to correct these things. Women need to run for office. Women need to hold elected office. And women need to make these changes because these are things that affect women. And this is no reflection on the men in this room or necessarily the men that I work with. But on a lot of these issues, they aren't things that would necessarily immediately come to mind because that's not their frame of reference. That's not their daily experience. For women, it's much different. And that's why when women are at the table, the conversation changes. And until women are equally represented on elected bodies and appointed bodies and in the boardrooms, we are not going to see the kind of changes that we need made. We can't wait for the men to do this. Women have to do it for themselves. So you young women need to get started raising money, working on campaigns, and then running for your office yourself. Will you tell them about the workshop in August? Yes. um, I'm actually planning a women's campaign leadership school that will take place in August. It's only uh, geared for and designed specifically for women who are interested in running for office or interested in serving deeply in another woman's campaign for office. So it will be taught by women, for women, from a women's perspective on how to run for office and how to win and then how to affect change once you're there. Very good. I'd love to see all the young people here go to that because even if you don't think you'll ever run for office, you might want to help someone else be successful in running and you might decide that you really should run. Um, To all the men who did attend today, I do want to say thank you. It's nice to see a lot of male faces. And then secondly, I also think that to some degree, women are our own worst enemies. We're not very good at negotiating. We're not very good at asking for high salaries. And so that's one simple thing that we can do is to just ask for more money and value ourselves and value our worth. I'm the president of Knoxville AAUW. Yesterday we were on the campus handing out information and payday candy bars with equal packets attached for equal payday. There are two AAUW programs that come from National that address these last two issues. The first is called Elect Her, 
that is a workshop for young women on campuses to show them how to run for campus office. And then they understand how to campaign, and hopefully after they graduate, they will think about running for public office. And the other is a workshop called Start Smart. And the two S's are dollar signs. There's going to be one in Maryville College next week that teaches young women, or anybody, I mean, it's not just women that can attend, uh, teaches, particularly women, how to negotiate when you graduate and are going for a job because there's a gender gap the first year after graduation, all other things being equal. One year after graduation, young women, you are making less than a man in the same position. And the AAUW statistics show that if we continue, this used to be 59 cents to a dollar for the gap, and we've gotten it up now to 77%. (laughs) Depending on which study, but it's somewhere between 77 and 80. In any case, the uh, statistics say that if we continue at our current rate of improvement on the gender gap, it will close in 70 years. Sorry, it's too late for all of you. (laughs) Got to do something a little faster. Okay. I think we overlook the fact, when we start talking about social problems, we overlook the fact that every social or political or economic discrimination against a woman, against women, affects more than half our population. It's huge. Those are huge problems. And they affect every home. If your wife earns less, then then you have less disposable income in your home. It affects men, too. But um, it falls with an unusually heavy hand on woman, women. And that's really what Jimmy Carter has concluded with all that incredible perspective he has. That allowance of discrimination that supports violence, the misuse of religion, results in mistreatment of women that creates the biggest part of the problems we have worldwide. And I haven't even talked to him. Um, I like how you uh, presented the issues worldwide and nationally, but um, I was just wondering if you could maybe give um, us some more information on problems that maybe need to be solved with women's rights in Knoxville, something that you just know specifically. Okay. There are a number of, of ways to begin. I think the suggestion of going to council or going to the government and trying to get them to begin to recognize and report on the issues here is huge. We have a real problem with sexual violence, not just at UT, but on college campuses here. That's not in some other state or some other country. That's here, and that's been here forever. Most of the time when women get sexually abused in college, they wind up dropping out. So they lose their education over it. And most of the time, the perpetrator goes on. And one of the things we didn't get to that Jimmy Carter deals with in here is that most of the college rapes are serial rapists who have done an average of 14 to 16 rapes. And they just keep going because we don't report it, we don't support the victims enough, and, and there's little hope of a conviction at the end. So I would think for young women, that's a really serious issue. I, when I, was a young, I don't worry about it quite so much now, but when I was a young woman, I really resented the fact that I couldn't go out and walk my neighborhood at night. Why shouldn't I be able to? Or go downtown by myself and have dinner knowing it would be late at night when I had to go back to the parking garage. Um, 
you know, we're putting the wrong person in jail, you know. That's what we're doing. We're, we're imprisoning the victims or the potential victims. And I, just to add to that answer, get to work on that glass floor. If we don't get full constitutional rights, it's going to be very hard to force our way to full equality. I think it was clear from what you've shown, and we haven't discussed it, but the basic, the root cause of the problem is religion in most cases. Well, religion perpetrates it uh, where people any, miss... Any politician has God in every other sentence today, yet he's in favor of the same problems uh, that we're talking about, and it also extends to evolution, to uh, vaccination, and a myriad of other things that affect everybody in this room, and in this country, too. Well, we might want to read the whole Bible, not just parts. Could you you explain once more what you mean by the glass floor when we don't have full constitutional rights? Okay. The glass floor is my coinage because it's kind of like the glass ceiling. You can't see it, and you think most young women today that I have talked to come to me and say, you know, I don't think I've been discriminated against. And then I have to sort of point out their paycheck and point out some of the processes and other things before they realize they, they're not where they should be. But the glass floor is the fact that when legislation is passed by the state or by the Congress, it's not, it's not necessarily constitutionally required. So those rights, like the Equal Pay Act, um, Violence Against Women Act, all those other things that we have been able to do, Title IX, Title VII, those are legislation. That's all they are. If the body that passed that legislation decided to revoke it or let it die in sunset, it's gone. It's not required because it doesn't have a constitutional requirement. The 14th Amendment that is supposed to give us all due process is specifically the only amendment in the Constitution that used the word male. It's the first time the word male appeared in the Constitution, and it really was intended for men. It was one of the the Reconstruction Amendments after the uh, Civil War. And women were very specifically excluded from being able to vote as a result of the 14th and 15th Amendment. That's another whole long story that I don't want to bore you with. But under the 14th Amendment, when the Supreme Court looks at discrimination, if you come to the court and say you've been discriminated against, there's a very strong standard for race, for national origin for religious discrimination. It's called strict scrutiny. And boy, the state better have a really, really good reason for that discrimination to let it stand as legal. But if it's discrimination against a woman or discrimination on the basis of sex, then we only get an intermediate level scrutiny. We have a class of our own, our own special class under the 14th Amendment. So it's easier for the state to get away with discriminating against women. That's the way it's interpreted. And it's been that way since it was passed in the 1800s. So if we don't get an Equal Rights Amendment, we can't fix that. Yes? How many states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment and how many have not? And I bet you Tennessee has not. Tennessee did. Oh, well, good. And then Tennessee rescinded it. (laughs) Kind of like when they gave us suffrage and tried to rescind it, too. (laughs) 
we fell three states short passing the Equal Rights Amendment. And the three states that we thought, there were three states in which we lost by fewer than three votes. Uh, including Florida, including including a particular person I won't name in Florida who ran on a pro-ERA platform, got a lot of help from women that supported the Equal Rights Amendment and then voted against it when he got elected. It's bad news. Who is it? I don't want to name the name right now. <laughs> You're the only person I've ever heard establish the 14th Amendment as establishing a class. Uh, It does. My question to you, what can we do about that? We can pass the Equal Rights Amendment, which says that women will have to be treated equally under the Constitution. We have the same rights as everybody else. Not special, sort of, almost, but not quite separate, but not quite equal rights. Yes. How does that process start? Pardon? How, How do we start that process? process or initiate that process or roll with that process? Well, there there actually is a national group uh, trying to approach there, there are a couple of ways to approach it. We lost by three states. The, the Equal Rights Amendment was the first constitutional amendment to which Congress attached a time limit that the ratification had to occur within a certain period of time, and if it didn't, then it died. So we lost when they wouldn't extend the time, the time extension on the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, so there is a group that believes that we could get three more states to ratify, and once they ratify, then take it to the courts and get the court to hold the time limit unconstitutional. That's a long process, but it's a long process either way you go. Otherwise, you go back to Congress and try to get it back out of Congress again to the states and get three-fourths of the states to ratify. Carol Maloney, who is uh, from Manhattan, she heads up a lot of work on the Equal Rights Amendment, and if you go to her website, she can give you a lot of information. Sorry. Did it fail back in the late 70s? I vaguely remember being 18 and somebody really being disappointed that it failed back then. Yeah, it did. It failed. I think the actual last date of extension was 81 Mm -hmm. while I was in law school. It broke my heart. I, I just thoroughly believe my daughter would be able to go into adulthood with equal rights. And now I'm wondering if my grandchildren will. Let me just wrap up by saying that was such a good question that we had from the young woman here. Really, there are so many areas that need attention that whatever your interest and your talents and wherever your connections are, we have a place for you. Uh, there's work to be done. And if you're not sure where to get started, you know, get in touch with me. I can point you to some folks that are trying to work on just about every issue, I think. If, you may never want to run for political office. I understand that. But it's important to understand the process so you can help someone else run. And then I also want to say we have a great role model back here in our commissioner, Commissioner Broyles. She has been so good. I want to thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Can we give her a round of applause? Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, 
please visit our website at knoxlib.org.